0: Good morning. Uh, I'm Brian Fry. I'm campus minister with RUF, Reformed University Fellowship at Boise State. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Brad, for the passage. <clears throat> I did. I said, I think it was about two months ago that I said, yeah, I can do July 3rd. And then after that, Brad says, hey, Malachi 3. So here we are. Um, no, I really, I mean, hey, it's in the Bible. Uh, and we're, it's one of those passages we maybe aren't always thrilled to read, uh, but we ought It's God's word. Um, somebody's got to preach it. Might as well be me. And uh, um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make zero apologies for anything in this passage. I'll make some clarifications, hopefully, but zero apologies. Um, oh, I'll just add to the note on PCA and resolutions for rec- racial reconciliation. That's a mouthful. Um, uh, there's also... Uh, yeah, Give to the Unity Fund. There's also a really helpful book that's, that's come out called Heal Us, Emmanuel. Um, uh It's a collection of essays. bunch of, It's super, super good stuff. It's all about racial reconciliation. What, what, what would that look like? Um, and the proceeds, actually, for that book will go, go to a fund to support uh, getting RUF started at historically black colleges and universities uh, to see uh, leaders and the church uh, grow and uh, be nourished and built up places that we desperately need it, places that we've honestly just neglected uh, ministering and caring for the body of Christ. So uh, so anyway, heal us, Emmanuel. Talk to me if you want like the link to Amazon or something like that. Um, okay, so we've been working through Malachi. Where did my water go? Excuse me. Two seconds. Go. Um, we've been working through Malachi for about the past month or so. Um, Old Testament prophet, last book of the Old Testament, at least in the English Bible. Um, uh, maybe for you, Old Testament prophets are kind of weird and, and obscure. What they're worth looking at. Um, Malachi in particular is structured around a series of disputes, complaints that God has against his people. Um, and so, so Malachi... As God's prophet brings God's accusations before his people and he says, hey, look, my love for you and my commitment to you has never, ever changed. But I have very, very good reasons to doubt your love for me and to doubt your commitment to me. Probably kind of applicable to us, right? I think God could probably honestly give any of us a list of disputes and say, here are the very good reasons I have for doubting the degree of commitment you have to me, despite the fact that my commitment is unwavering. So this morning what we're looking at is uh, complaint number five of six, Um, and let's take a look at it. This is God's word. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer. This is a reference to a locust or some other uh, insect that would eat their crops. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we need your help. If we're going to understand your word, we thank you that you do speak to us. And we thank you that you you speak to us clearly, but we confess there are times that we come to passages, passages like these that either make us uncomfortable or just are a, a, a challenge for us to figure out how we ought to actually apply it to our lives. So we ask you to help us with that, even this morning. We pray most of all that you would be honored and glorified, not only this morning, but in our lives as a whole. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So I just... uh, Actually, this is the first time I've been here. Brad's been gone for two weeks. I've been gone for, I think, four weeks. Um... So it really is good to be back. Uh, I just got back a few days ago from a, it was about a six-day trip to Seattle and Portland uh, where I, well, I ate a lot of food, um, a lot, lot. I sat in a whole lot of traffic. I also use this as my once-a-year opportunity to catch up on pop music. Um, That's a dangerous thing, by the way. Uh, Nothing gets stuck in your head quite as hard as Bieber, so um, if you're considering catching up on pop music... Just beware. Consider yourselves warned. Um, There's some decent stuff out there. Anyway, but the reason I went on this trip was not to sit in traffic, even though that's what I ended up doing. Uh, The reason I went was to go and to talk to a whole bunch of people for a whole lot of days about supporting RUF financially. That's what I did. Um, And that's part of my job. It's It's a regular part of my job. So I actually end up talking about money, like, a lot. Uh, probably more than a lot of you guys do. I talk about supporting the ministry of the church financially a lot. It's just part of my job. And a lot of people I talk to say, man, that must be really hard. I don't think I could do that. Um, And I think I I know what they mean. What they mean is that sounds extremely uncomfortable, and I'm better you than me. Um, That's what they mean. Why are, why are we so uncomfortable talking about money? Like, why, is this so, why are you so tense right now? Because I just read Malachi 3, and it talks about tithing. Um, what does that say about the way we view money? Uh, what does the way our level of discomfort in talking about money, especially other people's money, uh, what does that say about the way we view money? Um, every single person I talked to today leading up to this, they said, Well, what are you preaching on? I say, Malachi 3 it's about tithing. Every single one without exception said, "Oof!" right. What I did too, a little bit I was like, Ugh, Malachi three. Okay. Um, why, why is that our response? Uh, as far as I can tell, there's only two possible reasons why it would be uncomfortable, um, uncomfortable for us to talk about financially supporting the work of the church. One of two reasons, either the work of the church isn't worth supporting, uh, or we have somehow to some degree bought into everything our culture tells us about money and its power and the level of importance that it has in our lives, and therefore the level of privacy that it deserves, uh, the level of intimacy that it involves, right maybe we maybe honestly the, those of us who are the most uncomfortable in talking about money probably need to hear this the most, uh, because a lot of our discomfort is really just us saying. I think our culture might be right. Maybe money really is all important. Um, so I would I would invite you to relax, but I don't know if that would do any good. So I don't know. Be tense. Do what you want. Uh, we're going to look at this passage and see what it might have to teach us. Uh, three things I want us to notice about this passage. The first one is just this. Yes, this passage is talking about your money. Um, yes, this passage is about money. God's dispute with his people goes like this. Uh, Hey, you need to repent. You need to return to me, he says. And they say, well, how are we supposed to repent? What are we supposed to return from? Uh, He says, well, stop robbing me. And they say, well, what what do you mean? How are we robbing you? And he says, in your tithes and your contributions. You are robbing me by keeping back for yourself something that is rightly owed to me. You are taking for yourself something that belongs to me. That's what robbery is, right? You take something that rightly belongs to, to somebody else. Um, so we need a little context here, right? Everybody's saying, please, Fry, tell us something about, like, this is just Old Testament. And um, We do. We see the idea of tithing comes up uh, in the Old Testament a bunch. Uh, you see it in the Old Testament law. You see it in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They talk about it. But actually, you can see, as a practice, it goes back all the way to Genesis, Abraham uh, and Jacob. We see both of them tithing. Um Tithing just means uh, well here 's the command. The Old Testament law says you give one tenth a tithe that 's what tithe means. It means a tenth. You give ten percent of all of your harvest, everything you bring in, whether it 's grain or fruit or livestock or whatever one tenth was to be given to God. It was to be donated to support the worship and work and mission of the tabernacle or the temple. Um, what did that include? It included supporting the priests. That's what most often gets talked about when tithing is talked about. It says, hey, this is going to go pay for the, li- the livelihood of the priests and their family. who They don't have an income outside of this. Uh, they don't have land. And so you, go to, you give a tenth to provide for the priests and for their families. Uh, and then they also, in turn, go and give a tenth of what they receive from the tenth. Um, It also went to provide for orphans and widows and foreigners who'd been displaced from their homelands and anyone else in need. This money went to provide for the needs of those who didn't have um, means of their own uh, as well as the rest of the work and ministry of the temple. Uh, So it was a requirement. This is required by Old Testament law that the people of God would give one-tenth of everything they had. Um, And so we say with a sense of desperation but that's just the Old Testament, right? Like that, you know, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Uh, Surely God doesn't require the same kind of strict adherence to like a specific percent of our income going to the support of the work of the church. That doesn't sound, I don't I think I've got good instincts about like the stuff Jesus would say and that doesn't sound like something he would say. Um, Isn't that one of those Old Testament things we don't have to pay attention to? That's the question, right? That's the question we all want to know. Are we as Christians actually required to give 10% of our income to the support of the work of the church? Um, and that if, and are we somehow robbing God if we are failing to do that? Because here's what that would mean. Here's what a tithe would mean. I'll help you out with the arithmetic a little bit. Uh, if you work at Chipotle and get 10 bucks an hour, that means $1 for every hour you work is given to the church. Uh, which would work out if you're working full time to be, up, be about 40 bucks a week. It's about $2,000 a year if you're working for 10 bucks an hour. Um, if you're a teacher and you're making $45,000 a year, that would mean you're giving about $4,500 a year to the work of the church. That's $375 a month, it's $90 a week. I'll let you use the calculator for your own income and figure out, so what would a tenth actually mean? Because I don't think most of us have the courage to actually get the calculator out and ask the question. I thought I'd just get you started, give you some ballparks. Um, here's the way most of us would probably answer the question, are we as New Testament Christians actually required to give ten percent? Most of us would say, well, eh, doesn't feel quite right, so probably not. Let's actually ask the question. What are we supposed to do with this little piece of Old Testament law? Uh, What we find is the New Testament really doesn't say a whole lot about it. That's why nobody knows what to do with it. (laughs) Um, That's why all of us aren't quite sure about our gut instincts. Um, The command's not clearly reiterated, but that doesn't mean we just get to throw it out the window. Uh, Jesus, of all the folks in the New Testament, Jesus talks about it the most. Most clearly, he talks about it when he is going to town on the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel. And... uh, He says this, he says, look, you faithfully give a tithe of everything you have, even the herbs you grow, but you neglect justice and the love of God. And he does not say, so you shouldn't be tithing. What he says is, you shouldn't be neglecting all of the other stuff that God also commands of you. Um, Jesus seems to expect that tithing would be a normal part of faithful living, uh, as far as I can read it. You say, I don't like that answer. What about the early church? What did the early church do? What was their practice? From the earliest records we have, we, we have records from the second century that seems to indicate tithing, giving 10% was actually a very regular part of the life of the church, regular practice. If you don't like that, you can, uh, we could go with the model of the very earliest churches in the beginning of the book of Acts where it says everybody had everything. In con- you brought everything to the church and let the church distribute it to everybody else according to need. I'm guessing 10% sounds pretty good (laughs) compared to that model. Um, A few thoughts. Here's, I I think, hopefully helpful thoughts on how we should be thinking about tithing. Um, Here's what is very, very, very clearly commanded to every single one of us as followers of Christ. Generosity. There's no question about the command for generosity in all things. We are commanded to give self-sacrificially. We are commanded to take personal responsibility for the mission, ministry, and health of the church and for the needs of the people in our community. There's no way around those commands. Uh, One way I've heard tithing discussed, I think it's uh, pretty helpful. Um, Have we as New Testament Christians received mute... Have we as New Testament... Christians received more or fewer of God's blessings in terms of the revelation of his truth of the gospel and of his grace if we received more of his blessings or fewer than the Old Testament saints way way more right then why would we be expected to be any less generous than our Old Testament brothers and sisters were expected to be Uh, Bottom line, I believe, it's my belief that we as New Testament Christians ought to think about the Old Testament tithe, 10% of our income, as a sort of baseline minimum of what we should be giving to support the work and worship and mission of the church. That is unpopular, and that is deeply uncomfortable to a lot of you. Um, A lot of you would say, I can't afford that. It is. It's hard to afford if you're starting late in life. If you start early on, it's actually pretty easy. Um... I believe that we as New Testament Christians ought to see the Old Testament rule of tithing as a sort of baseline minimum. Um, at least 10 percent is what I'd say. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, all the kids in my uh, church's youth group got paired up with mentors in the church to meet once a week uh, with somebody who's assigned to you with me. For me, it was just, uh, a businessman, he was a family friend. Uh, in the church, we met once a week, uh, one-on-one whenever we were given discussion questions to talk about. It was really good. We did that for a whole semester. Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, I honestly cannot remember one single topic of conversation uh, except for one, which was on uh, spiritual disciplines. And one of the questions I was supposed to ask to him was, what discipline has been the most valuable for you and your growth as a Christian? And I'm sitting there thinking, in my head, okay, go to church, read your Bible, and pray. I can't even think of another spiritual discipline. Uh, I honest, I was like, well, he's going to say one of those three because what else is there? But he answered without hesitation, tithing. Tithing was the most valuable spiritual discipline for his growth as a Christian. Um, a lot of you probably tithe. A lot of you probably don't. Um, but I would be willing to bet that every single one of you who does regularly tithe, makes an intentional habit of giving 10% of what you earn to the work of the church, you would say, every single one of you would say, that has been valuable for my faith. Um, that has been a valuable spiritual discipline. And in my opinion, if you don't make a practice of tithing, you're honestly missing out. You're like, yeah, right, that's just something preachers say. no. I seriously think you're missing out because you're missing out on an opportunity to see God's goodness and care and provision for you. Uh, you're also missing out on a very tangible way of participating in the work and the mission of the church, and the mission of the church in your community, the mission of the church around the world. Um, yeah. I've heard it said, I've heard it estimated. Uh, That if everyone in the church actually tithed, uh, not only would missionaries and ministers and folks in my shoes, not only would we not have to raise support, we'd actually be able to triple our missionaries and ministries that we have worldwide. I think that's a conservative estimate. Um, I think we would do more than triple. Um, Anyway, bottom line is this. If you want to take issue with the Old Testament, if you want to take issue with the law and try to, you know parse out the difference between ceremonial, civil, and moral law and all that stuff. Be my guest. That's what you've got to do. That's the task at hand. Um, but you still have to answer the question, how much will I give to support the work of the mission of the church? Uh, you have to ask the question, what does God's command for generosity and taking personal responsibility for the work of the church, what does that look like in my own life? Um, what does obedience look like if it doesn't look like tithing? That's the question you have to answer. Um, what percent will you give? Because, look, if we start to take uh, the the heart of the command seriously, which is generosity, uh, not considering anything that we have as belonging to us, but it's simply entrusted to us by God, um, and taking responsibility for the church, if we started taking the heart of that command seriously, a lot of us would find we ought to probably give more than a tenth. Um, But that's where we begin to see this takes us to our second point. We begin to see this really, really a whole lot more about the heart than it is about the wallet. It's first about the, the heart. It's about motivation. Like everything else in the Christian life, this has much, much more to do with our heart and our motivation than we'd like to admit. So, second thing we ought to notice is, yes, this passage is about our money, but it it is also about our worship. It's actually much more about our trust and our worship. Because look at God's actual complaint against his people. He's not... His complaint is not, hey, you're not tithing. Verse 6, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, you want to know why you're even still here? You want to know why you haven't been consumed? It's because I have never stopped caring for you. Verse 7, But from the days of your fathers you've turned aside from my statutes and haven't kept them. So return to me. Repent. And I will return to you. Look at that, the patience there. He says, generations, you've just been ignoring all the things that I tell you to do, but come back to me. I'm eager to come back to you. So the people say, okay, sure, yeah, what's that supposed to look like? And God says, it looks like trusting me. It looks like trusting me with your money, yes, and your things and your security. So he says, Verse 10, I love this. He says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. Try me out. Put me to the test. See, the heart of the problem wasn't just that they weren't tithing, the heart of the problem was that they didn't trust God. They didn't know where their care was actually coming from. They'd fallen into thinking their security, their well being, rested most fundamentally on their financial stability, their ability to creatively manage their finances, even when it means cutting corners here and there. They were trusting in their finances rather than trusting in God. And so their sense of security was tied to their wealth. Their sense of security was uh, tied to what they had and how well they managed it rather than the one who actually cared for them. And as a result, what happened was their lives began to be shaped by uh, and oriented around their commitment to their money more than their commitment to God. The word for that is worship. So it really, honestly, when I read this, I think this is not first and foremost a, an eighth commandment issue you shall not steal. It's really a first commandment issue you shall have no other gods before me, you, shall, you will not worship anything but me. Um, Jesus said you, you cannot serve two masters. It's really basic economics here. He says you cannot serve both God and money. And what he means is like, you've got a certain amount of service in your account. You've got a certain amount of trust that you have. And the degree to which you are serving the God of financial security and looking at that to give you, looking to that to give you peace and comfort and security, that is exactly the degree to which you are are not trusting God and are not serving the one who actually, actually cares for you and who actually gives you real security. It's about worship. Uh, if any of us think that what we worship. What we build our lives around are not reflected by our bank accounts. We've never honestly looked at our bank accounts, right? Um, What you look to for meaning and purpose and security is always going to be reflected in the way that you handle your money. So we need to ask ourselves, what does the way I use or don't use my money say about what I believe um, about God? What does it say about where my fundamental trust lies? Here's the thing, um, worshiping money, we think, when we think of worshiping money, we picture like giant house and yacht and elaborate vacations. It can look like that, oh, or it just looks like having a huge savings account so that we're sure to be comfortable forever. Uh, we think that that's sort of our picture of what worshiping money looks like, and so those of us who aren't in that position say, well, that's probably not a problem for me. Honestly, worshiping money shows up just as much in anxiety about money constantly worrying about your financial security? Uh, because either way, what you're saying is my trust and my comfort, the degree of security that I feel in my life is directly tied to my financial security. Uh, okay, I'm going to borrow an illustration here from a pretty famous preacher uh, who most of you guys would know. Look outside. You can actually look out the windows. You can see Simplot Hill, which I can... Well, yeah, I can see it. So... um Right? It's beautiful. there's no no house up there, of course, anymore, which is weird still. Um, grass, trees, birds, maybe some flowers, most of them are burned up. Um, but it's beautiful, right? This is a beautiful spot to be. Um, God didn't have to make that beautiful, correct? He didn't have to do that. I mean, he, it's just grass, it's just trees. It's like they're pretty pretty important, kinda um. But he not only made that, he made it beautiful. He not only made it beautiful, he actually takes care of it and actively provides for his creation. right? So why in the world do you think somehow now he's going to fail to take care of you? Uh, Why do you think somehow he's going to fail to take care of someone who is his child, who he gave his son to purchase? Uh, What makes you think also that your financial well-being does not also fall under his watchful care? Of course, the preacher I'm borrowing from is Jesus, that guy. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Uh, Look at the birds of the heavens, look at the flowers. Does your father not also care for you? Uh, This is exactly what God is saying here in Malachi. He's saying, put me to the test. Try me out. Yes, even with your money. Verse 10: put me to the test. And see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and the field will not fail to bear fruit. Then all the nations will look at you and they will call you blessed for you are are a land of delight. In other words, like, will you trust me? And if you're not going to trust me, will you at least try me out? Will you put me to the test? Give me a shot. I would be happy to prove myself again. I've been proving myself for generations. Let me do it again. Because I love you so much and I'm so committed to you that I will do whatever it takes to convince you that I actually am trustworthy, that I actually do care for you, and that you actually are happiest and most secure when you are trusting me and not all these other things. That's the question for us, really. Will we trust him? And if we're not sure we're going to be willing to trust him, will we at least put him to the test? Will we try him out? And what better way to put him to the test than to see whether he can be trusted with our money? What's more trustworthy, your money or your creator? That's the question. Why don't you give him a shot? Okay, last thing we need to see. Third thing. If we miss this, honestly, we miss the whole passage. We miss the whole book of Malachi. We miss the whole Bible. Um, Yes, this passage is talking about our money, and that's deeply uncomfortable for a lot of us. Uh, Yes, this passage is talking about our worship, but this passage is also talking about our Savior. This passage is talking about Jesus. Uh, If we stop reading before we see Jesus here, we're going to be left with, I need to give more money, and I feel guilty. Um, And we've stopped short of the gospel and we've missed the point. We're left with moralism, really. Because the fact of the matter is this. uh, None of us are faultless in the way we use our money, not to mention every other area of our lives. Uh, All of us at some point in time have robbed God by keeping for ourselves something that belonged to him. Whether it's our time or our money or our trust or our worship or whatever. The fact is, it honestly makes no sense at all for any of us to give up one penny of our hard-earned money to invest in the work of a messy, uh, deeply imperfect church full full of messy and deeply imperfect people unless we see Jesus here, unless we see the gospel. Because Jesus, what did Jesus do? 2 Corinthians 8, he was the one who, though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that you in him might become rich. That's our Savior. That's the model we're given. He gave absolutely everything. Why? For you, for his church, to purchase his bride. This is, this is right in the middle. That verse is in the middle of Paul's argument Uh, His explanation to the church in Corinth about why they ought to be financially supporting the work of the church. I'm not like inserting an out-of-context verse into the discussion of tithing. This is Paul's explanation. He says, you want to know why you ought to give to the church? It's only, you shouldn't, unless, of course, Jesus actually gave everything for his church. Jesus did exactly what Israel was failing to do here in Malachi. Not to mention the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus had infinite wealth. And instead of holding on to it, he freely and graciously gave it up and completely entrusted himself to God and gave everything, even his life, for the sake of God's mission in the world. To redeem what is broken, to restore what is broken, and to bring healing to the nations and to bring comfort to his hurting people. That's what Jesus did. That's what the cross is about. If you're not sure what, the, what in the world the cross is about, it's about Jesus, it's about God himself giving absolutely everything he had for the sake of his church. So if Jesus is the model of responsibility, I mean the, the model of generosity, honestly, what can we not give? Jesus is the model we're given. You didn't like the Old Testament requirement of the tithe, of the tithe, giving a tenth. Jesus is the model we're given. He gave everything. And now we are invited somehow, amazingly, to participate in that same mission that Jesus himself gave everything for. What, what are we not going to give for that? Our money, our time, our homes, our energy, our tears, our sweat. What, what are we going to not give if Christ gave it all? When I was in seminary, I uh, worked construction for a guy. I uh, spent one year working for this dude. Uh, he grew up in communist Poland. He was an intimidating man in every single way. Um, I still get chills when I think about him. Uh, since I was in seminary at the time, naturally the church would come up commonly uh, as a topic of conversation. And every time he would say, I'm not going to imitate his accent because I do a terrible job and always ends up Australian. Um, but every time we ended up talking about the church, he says... The church is only about money and power. The church has only ever been about money and power. So he would go, because his wife was a pretty devout Catholic, so he would go with her, but he says, I don't, I don't buy any of it. It's all money and power. That's where some of you are. Honestly, you're listening to me and you're like, ah, classic church. Talking about money. Uh, you come in with a whole lot of baggage from your history with the church. You have seen power and money both misused and abused by people and people who stand right here and have misused money and uh, i don't i 'm not saying this pulpit, I think we 've done a fair job, but you have justified reasons to be kind of cynical and skeptical about anything the church would have to say about money um, and so you hear this, and you're like, "Here we go again. Um, this is what the church is always about it 's always about money. And you're this guy standing up front just wants to guilt me into giving my money away to the church. Um, two things I would say to that. First of all, giving to the church is not something that anyone ever expects of someone who does not consider themselves a part of the church. Never. Um, if you do not consider yourself a Christian or if you're just not really sure, do not give. You shouldn't give. At best, it would just be pointless Uh, At worst, it would be deeply hurtful because somehow you feel like you're earning some little God points and you're a few steps further down the road. That's just not how it works. Don't give. Uh, The second thing I'd say, though, is this. Uh, Giving to the church has nothing to do with guilt. It's not supposed to, at least. Um, It is about freedom and worship and imitating Christ out of joy and love and a deep and personal knowledge of your Father who cares for you, who does not change, verse 6, and will not change and will not cease to care for his children. It is freedom and worship and imitating Christ. It's about grace. Uh, It's not about guilt. It's about grace. You mix those two up and you lose the gospel. You lose everything. If you lose the gospel, I really don't care how much money you give to the church. It really doesn't matter. It's never going to be enough. If it's driven by guilt, you will never. You can never possibly give enough to purchase God's smile on your life. You could never possibly give enough to purchase God's care for you, manipulate Him into taking care of you the way you want to be taken care of. You could give away every single penny, and you will not get rid of your guilt. You can't. And you cannot manipulate God into giving you an easier life. You could give away every penny. It would never be enough. Because what you're trying to buy is something that cannot be bought. What you're trying to buy is something that can only be given freely. That's what grace is. So if you're hearing this and thinking, well, this is just like the church or Fry or Jesus trying to guilt me into giving away my money, uh, you've completely missed the point. You've missed the point because you've missed the gospel. This here's the point. God, freely, graciously, out of his sheer generosity, gave absolutely everything to purchase you, to redeem you, to redeem you out of slavery, to redeem you out of death, to redeem you out of bondage to all of those cruel taskmasters that you used to serve, some of which you still do serve, including your money, He gave everything to purchase you, and he says, you are mine. And so every moment of every day and in in every little detail, I will give you my care. You have my watchful care, and I am asking you to trust me. Put me to the test, he says. He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Will you trust him? Have you found God to be trustworthy? If you have not yet found him to be trustworthy, will you at least put him to the test? Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are hard things. Uh, We are uncomfortable talking about our money. Um, We are even more uncomfortable talking about how we have failed to obey you. Forgive us, Father, for our small view of your generosity to us. I pray that no one would leave this morning feeling uh, guilted or shamed about their money. But, Father, that we would all leave more sure of your care for us, more sure of your commitment to us, and honestly asking what would it look like for us to trust you, yes, even with our money. In our whole lives. Convince us of your grace a little bit more this morning, we pray in Jesus' name.